I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Steve Grosso, and Karen Feinerman. Tonight on Fast, Uber hitting the skids on weaker-than-expected results. The company's conference call is now underway. We are listening in. We'll bring you all the headlines. Plus, we're following late-breaking developments out of Capitol Hill. Right now, lawmakers are kicking off a high-stakes meeting on the next round of coronavirus aid. We are live in Washington with the very latest. And later... Steve Grasso is stepping up to the plate to pitch his next best idea why he thinks this housing-related stock is a total home run. But we start off with a $46 billion market mystery. That's how much Facebook added in market cap today. The reason? Not entirely clear. Many pointing to the launch of Reels, its answer to TikTok. But we should point out that news was out yesterday morning. Facebook shares today surged 6% to a new all-time high. So, Guy, what's your take on this move? <laughs> well, I have no idea why it moved like this. You know, I'd be lying if I said I had an answer, so I won't try to give you one. I, you know, I will give credit to Karen because she's been on this. You know, something we've said, you go back to the middle of June, and, you know, I remember this like it was yesterday when REI, North Face, Patagonia came out and said they were pulling their ads for a month. And at the time, I think Facebook so to 41. And I remember saying, you know, you've got to pull the ripcord on this. They're the first, but they're not going to be the last. And that proved to be correct. Then on June 26th, I remember that like it was yesterday, the stock traded down to 207, cratered, and then closed higher on the day. And something we've said is, and I'll say it again, there's nothing about Facebook I like in terms of the platform, and I'll continue to say that. I said, but this reversal tells you all you need to know. You've got to stay with the stock. And we've been pretty steadfast since. I don't know what happened today. Uh, and I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but you've got to stay with it. And I think the last quarter, which they reported a week and a half or so ago, is proof positive that despite all the problems they may have, advertisers don't seem to care. And c clearly the people on the platform don't seem to care. Yeah, Karen, you flagged this move on our 1230 conference call, which we have every day uh, in planning the show here. And you had mentioned that move. And it, it's just a staggering move when you consider the size of Facebook and how much of a move in market cap that is for the S&P 500, as well as the NASDAQ, Karen. So do you think that it was just simply a delayed reaction to this news that we got yesterday? We had time to digest it and figure out that Reels is a real competitor? I don't know. I think with the 1230 call, it was only up maybe half as much as it ended up closing <laughs> up. I think maybe it's delayed excitement about Reels. I was sort of wondering maybe there's some thought that TikTok will be shut down and not purchased by Microsoft, but I don't seem to see any evidence of that. And I, maybe it's just excitement around it. You know, I, I mean, for me, I'm not looking for another, you know, video how to do the Burning Man dance. But, you know, <laughs> apparently kids really like it. They love that it's like embedded that. in Instagram. So maybe that's part of it. But I, I go back to what Guy said. I was just re-looking today at the earnings from last week. They were so staggeringly good. You know, 11% revenue growth. Mm -hmm. Enormous margin expansion for operating income. That's pretty amazing. And it's still, even with the move after earnings and even with the move today, I have it at something like uh, 15 times EBITDA for next year and 26 times earnings. That doesn't even include the cash. And then for the year after that, 22 times earnings. That's not crazy expensive in this market. And they've been able to shrug off everything. So even with this move, this levitation higher, I'm staying long. By the way, of course, this is often how it happens. You see a big move in a stock and you sort of backtrack and figure out, try and figure out what was behind that rally. And sometimes the answer isn't entirely clear. And that's, a, that's sort of the mental exercise that we're doing for you right here on the show. Steve Grasso, this probably hit your screen. Um, so what was your take? 
I, I think I think it was reels. I think it was what you said that you needed a day to digest it. I think a guy talked about June. We all sat around, looked at advertisers, and we said they'll all be back. They have to come back. They have two choices, maybe three choices, but it's really just Facebook and Google. And to Karen's point, they knocked the cover off the ball with earnings. They're going to continue to knock the cover off the ball because advertisers have nowhere else to go. They've navigated this market extremely well. And when you're an investor, you're investing in tech. What's carried us over, what's carried us over the start line, the midline, and the finish line? It's been tech. There's really no place for everyone to go but these six names and Facebook is right at the top of the pile. Yeah, by the way, we saw an extraordinary move in shares of Apple as well, up 3.5%. And this is on top of the huge move that we saw earlier. Uh, Tim, you know, is it just this reach yeah. here for, for high-quality big-cap tech once again? Well, you know, it's funny. If you, if you think, and Mike Santelli, before we came on air, talked about some of the negative sentiment in the retail uh, investor readings. And, and you know, where, where are you going to see people run into if they're feeling panicky? Uh, I think Apple's the first place that they go. Those numbers by Apple were extraordinary, and we don't need to rehash it. Uh, but the move by Apple relative even to the triple Qs or the NASDAQ 100, I mean, it's up 21% to the NASDAQ since June 1. And so, you know, when you consider all of the, uh, the market cap at work here, these moves, and we, we talk about the sheer size of liquidity in the markets, but it gets a lot harder at these levels. But back to Facebook and comparing it to Apple, you know, even after today's move in Facebook, it's still underperformed those triple Qs year to date. So uh, a 6.5% move today, and it's still down about 5% relative to the rest of that group, which has had a big year. So some of this, uh, but I, I, I agree. Look, I said this last night. I, I do believe this is real. I do believe launching this off of Instagram and to the extent that Facebook uh, has been accused of being a copycat. So what? Um, when you have that type of a 2.7 billion uh, platform, I, I think there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to take trends and actually do better with them than other people. Uh, I think if you also add in the fact uh, Facebook shops has been a catalyst and a driver to the multiple, there's been all of the, uh, you know, essentially the, the, the ad and the engagement that we just talked about and how after being you know, resilient, I believe, was the term that they used in the early part of, of uh, 2Q. We learned as that quarter went on, it was actually a great quarter for Facebook. But let's not get too excited. I think this company should trade at a discount. And right now it is. I don't, I don't know why it will trade at a premium. All right, let's get more on the Facebook surge. Bring in Loop Ventures founder Gene Munster, also a friend of the show, of course. Gene, great to have you with us. Thank you, Melissa. How should we think about Reels? Should we think about it as attracting new users or simply preventing Instagram users from going to TikTok? Think about it as time spent. Uh, as Tim just mentioned, Facebook has uh, 2.6 billion monthly users, just unprecedented. There's 7.5 billion, 8 billion people in the world. Online, it's just over 3 billion. So they pretty much have the users. It's that time spent. That's why everyone is clamoring for this asset, is that that has become an addictive platform especially from the 8 to 22-year-old demographic. And so I think that's the piece, is this is a, a mindshare, a time grab. And obviously, with time, you can create advertising businesses. So I think that's what's going on. I, I do want to quickly weigh in, Melissa, just do I think that mm -hmm. Reels was the catalyst today, if I can cast my yeah. vote as well, is I think that investors were looking for a reason to be more positive on Facebook. The companies had a lot of things 
thrown at it negative over the past month and a half. I have been one of those uh, people throwing negative objects at the company. And I think that and as uh, investors think about Reels, we knew that this product was coming. We knew that there was a chance that TikTok was going to be shut down, not just yesterday. We've known it for a long time. It added 40, as you talked, plus billion in market cap today. The value of, of the whole uh, TikTok business is somewhere around $100 billion, maybe a little bit less after the, the potential elimination of it in the U.S. So uh, the math, this doesn't really seem to add up that this was entirely about uh, reels. But I do think it was uh, investors who believe, I forget which uh, one of your esteemed panelists said, that advertisers, guy, maybe don't have a place to go. That's the reality here. Uh, my view, unfortunate reality, they have no place to go. And uh, Reels was the catalyst today to get behind that. I guess let me ask this, the question in, in sort of a different way. Without Reels, would there be a concern that Instagram users would be leaving that platform and going to TikTok? Uh, much less. No, there wouldn't be a concern. Uh, I missed your question earlier. I apologize. Uh, that is a major issue for Facebook. It's always been an issue about an upstart platform to steal time away. And uh, TikTok is the most formable uh, of those competitors uh, since Snapchat came out. Hey, Gene. Obviously, thanks for being here. So something I brought up, I think I might have brought it up with you, but it's worth bringing up again. That obviously, uh, everything seems to be turning up roses for Facebook. Rightly so. I mean, the quarters have been ridiculous. Good for them. But my contention is if there is an existential risk, it comes in the form of potentially falling into the crosshairs or auspices of this ESG investing, which is taken over like wildfire. Is that a potential uh, problem for Facebook down the road, given everything that they've been facing recently? It's a good day for uh, Facebook investors, but ultimately I think that they should be well aware of these waves that we've talked about coming at them. I think you know, this more deliberate investing wave that you're referring to should uh, in, do investors want to invest in companies that ultimately make the world a better place. Uh, and I think that that is a wave that's going to come. I think there's regulatory. I think there's antitrust waves. Uh, I think that uh, if I was going to fast forward and think about Facebook over the next six months, uh, we're going to have more conversations about tough days versus good days because of uh, some of the things you're talking about there, Guy. All right, Gene, uh, stand by, please. We've got an earnings alert on Uber, the ride-sharing company, dropping in the after-hour session. Let's get to Deidre Bosa with the details. Deidre. Hey, Melissa. Well, on the earnings call, Darvar Khazra Shahi, at the start, he gave some more color on regional ride-sharing trends, calling the mobility business a tale of 10,000 cities. Have a listen. Asia at India is in the recovery lead. We've seen growth bookings in Hong Kong and New Zealand at times exceed pre-COVID highs. European trends have also been encouraging. France, Spain, and Germany, amongst others, have improved to being down 35% or less year over year recently. The U.S. is lagging, with GDs down around 50 to 85% in our top markets, with cities like New York leading in the recovery, and some West Coast cities like San Francisco and L.A. Melissa, he was also just asked, what if ride sharing never comes back in the way that it was before? And he said, if they have to go to small cities in the future, they will. Now, no surprise, he's also talking a lot about Eats, now called delivery, calling it a hedge for the decline in ride sharing. Now, remember, in one quarter, it became the main source of revenue to hit uh, to ride sharing amid the pandemic. He also said, quote, we've essentially built a second after three years with an accelerated growth profile, a footprint and an enormous TAM, which I imagine, guys, 
take issue with with delivery. Remember, Uber is getting into a very competitive and expensive market with already established players like Grubhub and DoorDash. Its acquisition of Postmates, not organic growth, will bump up its market share. Still, guys, the team has reiterated confidence that they can get to their adjusted EBITDA profitability target by the end of 2021. How they get there is still less certain. CFO Nelson Chai said on the call that the adjusted EBITDA losses in Q3 the delivery business is expected to be with Q2 and then improving in Q4. All right, clearly we were having some problems with Deidre's audio, Deidre Bosa, with some of the details there on Uber. Um, I think we got the gist of this here, though, Gene. It sounds almost like this is really, at this point, a trust me when it comes to uh, their profitability targets. It seems like there's a lot of wood to chop between now and, and that target in 2021. There is. They have $7.6 billion in cash. They burned $1.6 billion in the most recent quarter. They do got a great cash balance, but that could go quickly credit the company for cutting expenses by a billion dollars to really right-size the ship. But really, you look at these numbers, nothing really matters in the near term. This is all about what the long-term viability of the ride-sharing network is, and they'll be a player in that longer term. All right. So uh, is, this inv- is this investable now, or would you say, no, not, not till 2021? I would hold off a year. I think ultimately there's um, – they talked about the return being anemic right now, the recovery for, for Uber – And I think that's just going to take a few quarters. There's no urgency to get back into this. Gene, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Gene Munster's Loop Venture. Gene Munster, Loop Ventures. Uh, Karen, basically dead money for a year. Wow. Would you say maybe even longer? Yeah, I I, I think so. Maybe. I mean, two things sort of jump out to me. One is Carvana has been really interesting to me about talking about how tight the used car market is. And all those people buying used cars are not going to return right away to Uber. So I see that as a, as a more permanent change. And then the other thing is, what does adjusted mean? I'm, I'm a little hesitant to uh, understand what adjusted break-even is, if it's sort of adjusting for all the things that make them not break-even. So <laughs> I, I do think it's a great management team, though. I just, um, I'm not feeling compelled to have to jump in right now. And I think the, the um, Postmates is, um, it's it's a competitive market. So I'm not dying to jump in right now. Is this like buying uh, the cruise line, Steve Grasso? I don't don't know if it's as bad as buying the cruise lines or as early as buying the cruise lines. I think when you have to look at Uber, uh, I think Karen brings up a great point. Shelter in place, then they start using Uber once they get back out, and then they realize it's taking way too long to recover, so they buy a used car or a new car. I think eventually this quarter, this is the first quarter that we got a real chance to look at Uber uh, to see what Eats was over rides, and it didn't really compensate. So I think you have the ability, if you, if you buy, if you wait too long, Melissa, usually the easy gains are gone. So I think you're okay buying this stock right here, quite frankly. Yeah. Tim, what do you think? Quick thoughts? Well, yeah, last night I actually was in the strange position of feeling that this was a good final trade, and I stand mm-hmm. by it. And then a 3% move down lower 
um, doesn't particularly bother me. We expected these numbers. We, we know where the ride share numbers are. And in fact, the extraordinary thing is that this stock largely, uh, I, I think, is, is consolidated around the 33 to 36 dollar level for really for for six months, even from where we were pre. Look, if you're trying to hail a cab in New York City, it's not going to happen. And I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, meaning, I think structurally, the same things you're talking about, used cars and news cars. Uh, unfortunately, if you're holding a, a taxi medallion in a lot of major cities, it's becoming worthless. Uh, Rideshare will come back. Uh, the fact that this, this company has largely held serve. Um, from even where it was pre-COVID when we were speculating about uh, profitability as well. I, I actually think that's very impressive. Uh, and I think that the Postmates acquisition was, was very bright. And I think that they are uh, a leading player and are going to continue to dominate in that space. I know it's hard to make money. Um, but I, I'm more impressed by the stock action. You don't have to own it tomorrow. But if you're waiting for a year for this, mm-hmm. you, you're going to have missed a big shot. For more on Uber's quarter, catch Uber CEO Dara Khazrashahi tomorrow, 9 a.m. Eastern time on Squawk on the Street. Meantime, we are following a big developing story out of Washington. Take a live look at Capitol Hill, where top Democrat and GOP lawmakers are kicking off another round of virus relief talks. Let's get straight to Eamon Javers with the latest. Eamon. Yeah, Melissa, and speaking of live looks, we've got a live look here at the stakeout camera just outside the office where that meeting uh, is taking place right now. We've seen officials going in and out of the office as they arrive for negotiations between the White House and administration and Democrats up on Capitol Hill. Uh, Earlier today, both the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and the Senate Republican leader, the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, were on CNBC, and they explained really the fundamental philosophical dilemma here, uh, which is all about how much is the U.S. government going to spend? Here's what they said. Economists tell us, spend the money, invest the money for those who need it the most because they will spend it. It will be a stimulus or at least a stabilization of, of uh, and, and that's a good thing. The argument is over how much is appropriate at this particular juncture as we struggle to get the economy back on its feet and get the country in a place where it can sustain itself uh, until we get a vaccine. Now, Melissa, lawmakers had talked about an idea of having a deal by Friday morning. It looks like there's not a whole lot of time to pull something that big together uh, by that timeline. But uh, one of the questions about this meeting on Capitol Hill that's going on now is, can they at least agree to that price tag? Can they come up with a figure? Uh, Republicans had been around $1 trillion, Democrats had been $3 trillion or higher. Uh, can they agree on a compromise figure? Can they just simply call it $2 trillion and start negotiating about what's going to be in there? That might be something that's doable this hour, but we'll wait and see what they say when, we come, when they come out of those closed doors. That Friday deadline is tomorrow Friday, right, Eamon? Not next Friday, not the following. Yeah. Tomorrow, that's, Friday. That's right. And then the Senate goes right. on a so scheduled recess. Ad- right. So the idea that they're going to have something by tomorrow is yeah. looking increasingly far-fetched, I think you can say. And the Senate would still go to recess? Yeah, look, there's a possibility that they can bring them back if they have a, a deal in place. So it would take, you know, there's one thing to get a deal and a handshake all around. Then you have to actually put the legislation together in mm-hmm. writing. That can take a couple days, uh, and then you have to call the members back and get them to actually vote. That can take a couple days. So even if they get it, say they were to have an incredibly successful meeting behind closed doors now, mm-hmm. you're looking at you know nearly a week before you can actually pass something that the president can sign. Right. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers. You bet. Um, these senators have no concept 
of the word deadline, Guy Dami. I mean, no, I mean, it's amazing. No. You know, we've known that Friday was coming for, for days now, for weeks now, for months, and yet here we are. And but that's, that's historically been the case, yeah. right? And it's, it's, I mean, say what you want about the president, but this has worked out perfectly for him and the administration. And I say that because, you know, if, if this thing doesn't get through, he will say, look at the obstructionist Democrats. They don't want to give you, the American people, your money. Can you imagine that? Vote for me. And if it gets through, he'll say, look what I did for you, beautiful people. Your favorite president has gotten you your money. So it's a win-win absolutely for the administration for what it's worth. And I think at some point it's a win for the market as well because both sides need this to get done. So they can, all the rhetoric they want, Mitch McConnell can play fiscal conservative, which is a joke, but this will get done whether it's tomorrow or next week. I don't think it really matters all that much. Let's say something gets done, Steve Grasso. What is the reaction in the markets tomorrow? They come out tonight, late tonight, well, with some announcement. We got a deal. What happens tomorrow? Market rallies. Really? Market rallies. Still. This market, this market rally off the bottom was built on Powell, it was built on government intervention. I think today, in large part, is because both sides weren't uh, talking with as much venom. I think the deal will get done, and they wanted, uh, two, Republicans wanted $200 a week extra, Democrats wanted six, it'll be four. So they will, they will meet in the middle. It will get done, ultimately. I don't think they're, they're going to be hard-pressed to stay in D.C. until this thing gets done. And if it doesn't get done, President Trump said he'll do it through executive action. So the market will continue to run higher if a deal gets done, even more so. All right, coming up, the airline's gaining altitude with more bailout plans on the horizon. We'll bring you the very latest on that. Plus, the CEO of One Hot Robinhood stock joins us. What he thinks about all the day traders scooping up his shares, all that and much more ahead on Fast Money. Welcome back to Fast Money. Airline stocks rallying again today after the U.S. lifted a health advisory on international travel. Phil Abo's got the details. Phil. Melissa, this has been in effect since March 19th, and it essentially is the State Department issuing on a scale of one to four, one being it's not, not bad to go to a particular country, to four being don't travel. We're telling you, do not go to this particular country. Well, the rest of the world has been at a four since March 19th. Now they're going to pull it back, and they're going to go back to a, a country-by-country system. The idea here is that the pandemic is not as bad in certain areas, and therefore it may be okay for you to travel. Is this going to give a boost to international travel? Probably not immediately. I mean, the demand is simply not there, and it's not expected to return anytime soon. That gave airline stocks a bump uh, late this afternoon. Earlier in the day, the momentum was being driven by the fact that you've got uh, growing momentum in Washington for a second jobs bill for the airline employees. Remember, they got $25 billion uh, back in March to ensure their jobs all the way through the end of September. Well, this would be another $25 billion. It would guarantee airline jobs, no layoffs, through the end of March. And the whole idea here is that it would preserve about 100,000 jobs. That's the estimate, though. I've heard some people say it's probably closer to 75,000 jobs. Nonetheless, that's a whole boatload of jobs. And the reason that the airline industry wants to ensure those jobs and not lay off people is because it would prevent costly retraining. It would ensure, if this goes through, that service to smaller cities, so important for so many people in Congress, that stays intact. Also, they would have the employees on hand for a quick ramp-up if and when demand recovers. 
Now, Delta CEO Ed Bastian out with a note today, his, his weekly employee newsletter, and he said, look, the recovery could be long and it could be choppy. And that's why when you take a look at not only shares of Delta, but let's talk also about American, Southwest, and United. All of them are hoping that they see a, a steady recovery. But I can tell you right now, guys, where we are in terms of uh, airline passengers, it's down about 72 to 75% every day. Melissa, guess where we were in terms of airline passengers about three and a half weeks ago? Down 72 to 75 percent. Wow. We are plateauing, and nobody's quite sure when you will see it really start to improve. But that's where we are right now. Right. Um, Phil, in terms of this bailout package, did the layoffs that were already announced by the airlines, would they go into effect so those people would still lose their jobs and this would preserve? No. An... No. So no, remember, even though they were ready to make those cuts, if we got this bailout package, they would keep those people on the job? Correct. Correct. Okay. Correct. Now, the, the interesting thing is there are some airlines and some employees who have said, I'm voluntarily leaving the company right. or I'm taking a leave of absence. Those people, in theory, they've already they've made an agreement with the company that they are leaving. Depending on what this, how it's structured, they're leaving. In some cases, they may be gone from the company, you know, already. So th this would not, you know, ensure payments to those people. But it for those, let's say, I don't know, 2,000 flight attendants at a particular airline who are going to be laid off because they simply don't have the service levels after October 1st. If this goes through, mm -hmm. they stay on the payroll. They don't get laid off. Phil, thank you. Phil you LeBeau bet. in Chicago uh, for us. Karen Feinerman, um, this is going to sound cruel and heartless, but from a free market's perspective, okay. at some point, aren't we better off allowing all this pain to sort of flush through? the airline industry so that they can perhaps restructure and right-size their business for a business that may not look the same on the other side of this pandemic. Right. Well, as a sort of a capitalist, yes, right? That's sort of how, you know, investors, equity investors, for example, should know that the risk is everything, theoretically, 100%, you know, just as a you know, someone who cares about people getting laid off and their livelihood. And, and really, I mean, I think to, to the extent that we can do something to get them through the other side, that's good. I mean, when I think about TARP actually saved a lot of those banks, which was somewhat different, of course. But the government ended up making money on that. So I know the airlines have been really opposed to having equity stakes from the government. But I think I would rather have that than keep giving them loans. Um, and, you know, an equity stake would allow them some breathing room. Mm -hmm. Guy, I mean, is bankruptcy such a bad word in the airline industry? We've seen it time and time again for most of these airlines. Well, the, the counter arguments that would be, you know, I think a lot of people feel it's sort of a national security issue in terms mm -hmm. of the airlines. You know, who am I to say? I understand what you're saying. And, you know, and, and just looking at through that lens, I want to be clear with this. I don't I, I have no interest in seeing people lose their jobs want to put that out there. But with that said, to your point, at a, at a certain point, you have to allow corporate Darwinism to take place, right? I mean, because there will be an airline industry in this country, no doubt about it. It's just a question of what it looks like, to your earlier point, on the other side of this. Somebody will swoop in and maybe run it better. I mean, you can make a, you can make a similar argument that GM is no better off now than they were 10, 11, 12 years ago. Just look at the stock, quite frankly. So it's an interesting point. Obviously, we're very sensitive to the fact that we're talking about the lives of human beings mm -hmm. here as well. And I want to be sensitive to that. But to your point about just allowing things to flush themselves out, um, 
I think that ship probably sailed a long time ago. Tim? I, yeah, I mean, I have to totally agree. I, I would emphasize that airlines probably needed to trim some fat anyway. Um, I also think that they're going to be net in the same place or worse off uh, giving them money than to pay out. Then, you know, I, I don't and I recognize that the gain is for the, the employees and to allow uh, all the other economic benefits for the economy and the country. But but for the airlines themselves, you don't want this. And, and there's no question there's going to be a higher cost to this package than the first one. And, and therefore, as an airline investor, you don't want to see this because not all airlines need this. Uh, and those airlines that have cut capacity and right-sized for demand that, that okay, right. Uh, in fact, it's not coming back as fast. Um, that has been uh, a largely healthy thing for their businesses. And, and I'll, I'll take all of Guy's caveats. Uh, no one wants to see the country lose these kinds of jobs. Um, but if you're asking about the airline industry and what's best for it, um, these cuts will be more enduring in the long run if they happen now as they should. Steve? Uh, let's remember, though, I, I think that what's different this time is that this was brought on through no fault of their own. So I, th I think we've uh, decided, uh, someone like that, we've decided that back when uh, we, we were too big to fail, now no one is going to fail or no one is going to be allowed to fail. Uh, air travel is essential. I'm in Spirit Airlines still. That's at the bottom of the barrel. Nonetheless, I'm there. You want to be in the best quality, then you go to Delta or Southwest, and those domestic airlines are going to come back sooner, I think, uh, versus later, and that's Spirit, JetBlue, and Southwest. But kid yourself not, the, these industries will not be allowed to fail, nor do I think they should be allowed to fail. All right, still ahead, our exclusive interview with the CEO of Workhorse. It's been a hot stock among retail investors. We'll talk to the CEO about that and how he plans to pull ahead in the electric vehicle wars. And later, the hidden pain in retail, what a growing number of retailers going bust means for the commercial real estate market. Got the details and much more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Electric car companies have been red hot lately, including Workhorse. The Cincinnati-based manufacturer designs and builds electric delivery trucks and drones. The stock has been on an absolute tear over the past three months, surging more than 450 percent. It also got a nice pop earlier this week when Lordstown Motors announced it was going public through a SPAC. Workhorse owns a 10 percent stake in Lordstown. Joining us now is the CEO of Workhorse, Dwayne Hughes. Dwayne, great to have you with us on the show. Great to be here. We appreciate the opportunity to be with you, Melissa. You know what is amazing about this story, Dwayne, is that your, your stock, you've been public for about a decade and, and nothing. And then all of a sudden in the past few months, it's, it's just gone high. It's gone from two and change to 16 and change where it is today. Um, what do you think accounts for this rise? Is it a match in, in a change in the fundamental state of your company? You know, it's a combination of things, I believe. You know, there's been a big spotlight shown on the electric vehicle space. You mentioned we're out of Cincinnati, Ohio, and it's been really difficult over the years to scream loud enough as an automotive OEM out of Cincinnati to get the attention we feel like we deserve based on the performance of our vehicles that have been on the road with more than 6 million miles. But again, that spotlight that's been recently shown through different uh, SPAC vehicles, uh, such as the Lordstown announcement, that brings uh, additional attention to us and has given us an opportunity to demonstrate our proof of performance and the things that we've been doing well and continue to do well. So I'd like to think that a lot of it is because of our performance as a company, but it's also just that 
um, you know, people are taking a much uh, higher profile view of the EV space now. Right. Um, and we should note that you're going to report earnings on August 10th, so you can't get too deep in the weeds on specifics. But I do want to talk about um, your business and, and maybe some of the reasons why the stock may be rocketing higher at this point. Can you can you talk to us about your expected production ramp um, and, and the bookings that you have so far? You know, between the fourth quarter and the first quarter, we saw a, a pretty steep decline uh, in the dollar amount of vehicles delivered, 364,000 to 84,000 in the first quarter. Uh, and I'm wondering what you see as the trajectory going forward. Yeah, that's a great question. I appreciate that. Um, in, in reality, we delivered our first vehicles in March of 2015, and we delivered our Generation, electric, our generation 1 electric vehicles through uh, December of 2017. At that point, we, uh, I'll say, took a pause and paid attention to our customers, did a lot of learning over uh, the experience of having those vehicles on live duty routes, uh, the 6 million miles I mentioned before on the road. And we were able to really identify what the electric vehicle of the future really is for our commercial fleet customers, primarily in the, you know, the parcel delivery space and the last mile delivery space mm -hmm. altogether. So uh, since our redesign, which I see you showing on the screen there, um, and and identifying things such as the weight of the vehicle. For example, a combustion engine step van that's used for parcel delivery today, they weigh about 11,000 pounds before you put the first package in it. Right. Uh, what we identified was the ability to reduce that weight would allow us to right-size the battery pack, give us a better opportunity, as well as our fleet customers, an opportunity to have a stronger ROI and a total cost of ownership savings. And uh -huh. so taking on the things that differentiate us, such as those weight savings, have given us an opportunity to now move into production this year where we've already delivered the first two of our Generation 2 vehicles. And we're really um, loading up, if you will, to deliver primarily in the fourth quarter of roughly 300 vehicles this year on a backlog of roughly 1,200 that we have currently and continuing uh -huh. to grow. So you've delivered two vehicles so far. You aim to have 300 by the end of this year. Is that correct? Okay. Correct. Um, in, in the meantime, Dwayne, I want to talk to you about uh, your, your cash position. You ended the previous quarter. I understand you have another quarter that you're going to be reporting shortly with $16 million in cash. All your expenses have gone higher in the meantime. Cost of goods sold, SGNA, research and development. You're, you're burning cash. How long is that $16 million going to last, especially as you are ramping up to go from two delivered to 300 by the end of the year? Very good question. Um, and I think we publicly announced just the other day or a week or so ago that uh, we have over $100 million in cash at this point um, due to a new financing we, we brought in. Um, in addition to uh, the warrants that were that, that came in in cash. So we are in our strongest position. I'll say it this way. For a company with the most amount of electric trucks on the road given any other company in the U.S., we are now in our strongest cash position that we've ever been in. Um, and we feel very uh, good about our position in cash as well as our ability to, do, to deliver on the orders. What can you tell us about the status of the U.S. Postal Service a potential contract. That contract could be worth as much as about five to six billion dollars. You could get a partial award. You could get a full award. You submitted the RFP, I think, mid-July. When will you know? Your CFO recently said that this, this award would be transformative for the company. I mean, I would imagine that would be so if your cash position right now is about 100 million. I mean, that contract could be, could be you know, truly um, 
changing for your company? Yeah, I would say any contract like that would be changing for any company virtually. Um, in our case, we're unable to speak about the post office at all. I have to say no comment because, uh, you know, we're under a gag order of not to talk about it. But certainly, to your point, any contract that's worth billions of dollars coming into a company like ours would be a very, you know, uh, company changing experience. When, when do you expect to hear? You know, we... We, we don't really have a timeline for that. Publicly stated, the post office said um, their original information was, um, I believe, somewhere in that 90-day range after the RFP responses. But that was part of the program from the very beginning. So mm -hmm. we do not have an answer to that today. Okay. And if, it, if you got that award, that would be 300 by the end of the year plus whatever it is for the Postal Service? Correct. Okay. Dwayne, great to speak with you. Hope you'll come back on the show sometime soon. Yep, would love it. Thank you for taking the time, and uh, have a good day. You too. All right. This is a stock that we uh, have, have seen just, you know, flash in our screens with this uh, frenzy over EVs. Guy, what do, you, what do you make of a business like this? I mean, this goes into the whole fabric of investing for a future vision at this point. Yeah, without, without question. I, I think they report this Monday. Um, mm -hmm. Big short interest in the name. The risk reward. Look. Again, 100-hour table, but you've seen big short interest names have explosive moves to the upside post-earnings, and my sense is you could see similar with this name. It's, it's a real story that you're going to continue to hear about. It's an Ohio-based company, as you mentioned, Battleground State. Um, there are a lot of interesting things that can come. There'll be positive tailwinds for this stock. So look for earnings on Monday and look for that short-covering rally. Yeah, according to said it's a 34% short interest, Steve Grasso. Yeah, these are names, as uh, Guy said, $100 table, deep end of the pool. But the problem with these is uh, what you just said before, that if all these contracts don't come uh, to uh, fruition, this, this company was running out of cash by the end of 2020. Obviously, on that $16 million number, he corrected you and said they have $100 million. So I think you have to really kind of play it safe in these things because with a Tesla name, there's a lot of deep pockets and multi-levers to pull. I'm not sure how the depth is on something like this. This seems like a Robin Hood trade to me if there ever was one. Doesn't it feel like that to you? Well, I mean, you know, the other flip side to this is with all the excitement over EVs, Karen, it might be easier to get financing. I mean, we saw Marathon Asset Management come in. Um, that was one of the major sources of funding for this company recently, expanding that $16 million cash stockpile at the end of the first quarter. So maybe it's a, it's a decent time to be a company like this that is looking for funds and financing. Right, or maybe it's a decent time to do an equity offering given the excitement mm. around it that sort of bakes in a lot of good things happening, which may happen. They might happen. But, uh, you know, we've seen companies look at um, uh, Virgin Galactic doing an offering, taking advantage of the market. Uh, Nikola, I mean, they should. I think $100 million sounds like a lot, but uh, if they want to scale up the way they want to and hope to, they're going to need a lot more than that. Yeah, M manufacturing costs a lot of money, Tim Seymour. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, the, the bottom line is, uh, if you see, we've talked about SPACs, we've talked about these pipes, there's a lot of liquidity out there. Uh, the EV space is a story space, but it, it, and, and we're seeing that uh, there's some very charismatic uh, visionary folks at the helm. But to what extent, it, the, the key difference also, obviously, for, 
for someone like these guys in Tesla, uh, many of these folks we're talking about are purely focused on the commercial market. And, and that is a market mm -hmm. where I think there's a, a very specific niche and a fleet customer to fill. Um, what's also very interesting, though, at a time when, as someone who is very uh, uh, certainly concerned, critical about the competitive environment for Tesla, all this is really doing is pointing out the, the opportunity in EV. And maybe, if anything, uh, this is a case where it's, it's actually supporting uh, the, the Tesla head start. But it's very interesting because I think the competitive landscape is something Tesla really does need to worry about. But, if, but, but if the, the, the recent focus on this entire sector, uh, if anything, um, has had folks feel very confident about the position that Tesla has. All right. Coming up, we've heard from Uber. Now Lyft is on deck. What can you expect from the ride-sharing company when it reports results? We got that coming up on Fast. Mark your calendars this Wednesday. Join the CNBC Small Business Playbook Virtual Summit. You'll hear from Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg, Gary Vaynerchuk, and many other power players. It's all about providing small business owners the resources to survive today's crisis and mapping out a path forward to thrive tomorrow. Go to CNBCEvents.com to register. Much more Fast Money straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. The retail bankruptcies continue to mount. Lord & Taylor, Men's Warehouse, the latest big names added to the list this week. The mounting bankruptcies could spell trouble for the commercial real estate market as more and more retailers break their leases. For more, let's bring in Naveen Jaggi, the president of Retail Advisory Services at JLL. Naveen, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Do you think that this is going to get to the point where it triggers uh, problems for the mortgage payments of the owners of those properties? Well, certainly it looks like there's a lot of retailers that certainly filed for bankruptcy Chapter 11s and Chapter 7s. I think we've got to watch closely. If Christmas doesn't have a good holiday season for retail consumers and for retailers, I fear there could be challenges in 21 in terms of rent payments. Absolutely. So you think Christmas, they have until the end of the year, basically, and the clock is ticking. I do. The, the clock is ticking, and if things don't turn around by Christmas, I, I fear for a second wave of bankruptcies in the early part of 21. What will you be looking for? I mean, there's no traditional back-to-school even. I mean, so even taking that into account, they have until then? Well, I think that the back-to-school is a two-way looked at. The back-to-school for going to school is different than back-to-school working and schooling from home. So you may see a shift from clothing to tech products, for example, computers and iPads and those kind of things. So our consumer surveys that we've done with our consumers tell us that the spend for this year will likely be comparable to last year. It's just that they're buying differently. So you will see some back-to-school specials and back-to-school sales. The items they're buying are different, which may be some salvation, but not for the soft fabrics and the soft goods sector. I think that sector is the one that we have to watch closely. Uh, Karen, let me ask you something. We have so much retail space out there. Are we going to have to see just a, a big shrink in the amount of retail space to get sort of the, the, the supply-demand dynamics in line, not a vaccine? Yeah, I mean, we're certainly oversupplied on retail space. We have been for about 15 years. We need to lose some of that retail space. We're not overstored, folks. We're, over we're under-demolished. That needs to happen in the next 12 months. I think that is something we will see accelerate now that we're in the pandemic. Absolutely. Under-demolished. That's a new phrase. Uh, Naveen, great to have you with us. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. Naveen Jaggi of JLL. Uh, Karen, you've been in this space before. You have tried to short REITs before. Do you think it could be time to dust off that trade? <laughs> um, 
You know, I don't, I, I'm, I think that there are only a few left that there's this sort of second tier ones are at or near bankruptcy. We've seen, you know, CBL and mm -hmm. WPG, but um, I wouldn't be short a Simon property. They're the best of the best. I would be sort of concerned about Bornado. They are very, very um, New York centric, which is a very tough place to be. All right. Up next, ready for lift off. Why options traders are bullish on Lyft heading into earnings. We'll break down the action coming up at the top of the hour. A big night on Mad. Jim is sitting down with the CEO of Etsy, CEO of Papa John's, and the CEO of Verizon. That all starts at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Uh, this is a, a check on Uber shares. Three and a half percent or so is the loss here in the after hours uh, session on weaker than expected results. The ride sharing company's main competitor steps up to bat next week. Lyft reporting on Wednesday. Options traders are betting on a liftoff heading into the results. Mike Coe's got the action. Hey, Mike. Hi there. So Lyft saw very heavy options activity today ahead of Uber's earnings, actually. It ended up trading more than three times the average daily call volume. Right now, next week's straddle is implying that Lyft could move about 12.5% higher or lower by the end of next week. But interestingly, this week's straddle was also quite expensive at about 6% of the stock price. And most of today's activity actually expires tomorrow. So it would seem that a lot of this week's activity were options traders betting on Uber's results impacting Lyft's share price. The most active options were the 31, 32, and 33 strike calls. A big chunk of that was an 8,000 lot call spread, 31, 32 call spread. What was going on there was somebody who had already made bullish bets on Lyft earlier this week decided to roll up to the 32s. They took the profits on the 31s, pressing their bullish bet. See, we'll see how it happens tomorrow, and we'll see what happens next week. Yep. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike Coe. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, final trades. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim. Best Buy, you know, we heard about how the back to school could be a huge electronics run. This stock's done nothing but move higher, and it stays higher into the holiday season. Karen Feinerman. Yes, I'm not following. I was already in there, but I guess I do like to follow the Oracle of Omaha. Bank of America, I think, they've over-reserved. Even if we see terrible loan loss, they're still going to make money. Steve Brasso. Home builder DHI, record low mortgage rates, and you have the millennial getting out of the basement, buying homes. That's going to continue. And the best balance sheet within the home builders, DHI. Bye, bye, bye. Guy. I think Xilinx is too cheap, Melissa. Mm. Aren't you say back to you? Back to you, Melissa. Thanks for watching Fast. We'll see you back, back here to tomorrow <laughs> at 5. Mad Money starts right now. <laughs>